Welcome back. For those of you who are courageous enough to come back, I, you know, it's, it's uh, difficult, more difficult for me uh, moving here and standing and talking to realize the temperature, but uh, some of you told me at the end of the second session in the morning that it was freezing here. And uh, the truth is I stayed and uh, I, I kept working and then a friend came and we were talking and after about 15 minutes of just the two of us talking here, everybody was gone. I was shaking. Yeah. So they were really right about that. Um, we have asked several people and they, they have contacted them and I, I believe it's going to be uh, better. I, I think it might be already a little better. I hope it's not so better yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that everybody falls asleep and say, yeah, that's, that's so comfortable now. Because you still, you still have the best chairs in the house. You know that, don't you? <laughs> okay. Um, if you have your Bibles, just, um, just open them along with me just to, to begin with this session. And uh, I would like to just, just read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. You know, that, that word patient in Greek is the Greek word that is used to be patient with people. It's not being patient with things, you know, like waiting for your train to arrive. Love is patient is when you're patient with individuals. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails. What a marvelous statement. Think about that. You know, we say certain things don't fail. We, we, we would give it a great deal of credence if something fails a very low percentage of the time, if something is successful 80% of the time, everybody would be paying good money for it. Wow, I can count on eight out of 10 times for this to be successful. That's a very high ratio on anything in life. When the Bible says something, you know you can count on it. And when the Bible says that love never fails, that's, an, that's a remarkable statement. That's a remarkable statement. When you think about the great controversy between good and evil, and then when you read that statement, love never fails, it means that at the, at, at, at the final analysis, God's method of dealing with sin will actually succeed, and it will succeed much beyond what we expect to succeed, because love never fails. Let's talk this afternoon about this new nature, we talked about the nature of sin, we talked about the nature of God, began to, let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, respite and for uh, food, for lunch. Thank you for this day which is given to us. We didn't work to earn it. You purchased it on our behalf. Thank you for the opportunity to be engaged with the Word of God this afternoon. I pray that you be with every, every seminar this afternoon and everyone going to the seminars. Be with the speakers, the presenters, and be with us too. May we perceive something about your nature, something about your ways and means that may be insightful, that may be helpful to us as we seek to understand you and our relationship with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The greatest miracle in the world, a new nature. Mark Twain had a logic. He says, heaven goes by favor, by grace, if it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. It makes a lot of sense. 
Because the dog always tries to please his master. And so a dog would deserve heaven more than we would. Um, Twain was a rebel, but he was no dummy. First John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. These are some of the most important, clear verses regarding how God saves us. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Two very important things right there. What are they? One is the tense. God has given us eternal life. It is not God will give us. It is not God gives us or might give us. It God has given us eternal life. In other words, that is something that He has already accomplished 2,000 years ago. It is a guarantee. It is already stocked up. It is in deposit only for us to withdraw. God has given us eternal life. The other one is, this life is in His Son. So if you want that, if you want to withdraw that eternal life, it doesn't come in a vacuum. It comes in His Son. If you want that eternal life, it is not simply a concept. It's not something that God says, you know, oh, I gave you flowers and you can, you know, flower seed, you can plant it in your garden. No, I gave you eternal life and that eternal life comes with Jesus Christ. That's why when Christians uh, have an overemphasis on the cross and in, in, um, an underemphasis on the power of Christ in your life, it is a, an unscriptural view of it because salvation is not simply what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Salvation is also what Jesus is accomplishing in your life based on what he accomplished at the cross. He who has the Son, this is one of the most beautiful verses. Every Christian ought to know this by memory, that verse 12. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's very clear and simple. And then verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he is reiterating what he said in verse 11. You, God has already provided eternal life. He has given to you eternal life. And then he says again, so that you may know you have eternal life. How do we have eternal life? Well, verse 12 answered that. He who has the Son has life. And the life is not the life we're talking about here of 70 or 80 years. We're talking about eternal life. So in the reference in verse 12 about the life is a reference about eternal life. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son doesn't. How's anyone to be born again then? Remember we spoke about the fact that sin, this nature of sin is such that it, it is something that not even God can fix. And that sounds strange. How could it be that God who can do everything and anything cannot fix sin? What He cannot fix is that nature of sin. It is, it is, it is unfixable by its, by its own components, all right? It, it just doesn't work. It's equivalent of, a, of an artist getting uh, good quality clay in order to make a pottery. And in, in works on that, works with a with the wheel and works with the, uh, the water, etc., but gets interrupted, leaves the work halfway done, has to go, but doesn't come back until a day later. By the time he comes back, what does he do with that halfway done piece of pottery? All he can do, he can try. He could try to fix it. He could try to put some more water in it and to keep modeling and working on it. But what he does do, actually, is throw it away. He throws it away and starts anew. He has to begin anew because it will never be a top quality piece of pottery otherwise. It cannot happen. God does the same when it comes to our human nature. 
He cannot fix it. It cannot be fixed. And so he has, start, he has to start over again. Why can he not be fixed? Can, he cannot fix it because we already have uh, destructive elements into it. It doesn't matter how much good he puts into that. Because we have the bad already, it's always going to be a mix. So he has to start over again. He said, oh, I'm sure that I'm raising more questions than I'm answering at this point, but stay by. Let's, 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 look, at, let's look at this story, which is, which is the story about how God does that, you know, that uh, process in John chapter 3. You want to open your Bibles to that. I know it's familiar, and this is simple, and yet there is some depth into that. Just like Nicodemus... Many were looking for answers. And Nicodemus was a theologian. You have to understand this. Nicodemus was not just, not just a regular Joe. Nicodemus, his whole life was the study of Scripture. And in spite of that, there was, a, there was something he was missing. Remember when we talked at uh, the first session about one of the results of sin being peacelessness? Quote-unquote. That restlessness, well, that is evidenced in Nicodemus. Nicodemus knows that there is something that is missing in his life, and that is why he is going to this man who appears to be so different than anyone else he has ever met. He seems to have put things together. He doesn't understand why, because the guy's a Galilean, and the guy not, does not belong to, to, the, to the lawyers of the law. He doesn't have the education that everybody else it, who, who, who would have a chance to have it together has but the evidence the fruit is so self-evident that he says I've got to talk with him I have to I have to figure th this out and that's exactly why he goes there the verses 1 and 2 say there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews this man came to him by night and said to him Rabbi we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs. What is that? These miracles. Uh, this is on the heels of uh, kicking out the, the um, merchants out of, out of uh, you know, the first cleansing of the temple. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's interesting that that is what got his attention. It wasn't healing uh, somebody who was blind. It wasn't healing somebody who was a leper. You could argue that there were Old Testament prophets who did some of those things. You know, even raising the dead. But what he did notice is the self-emanating authority coming out of Jesus when he kicked out the merchants out of the temple. He took one look at them. He said one statement and people ran. In the, you know, sometimes people portray Jesus as being upset. You know, he takes the, this cord and, you know, he starts beating on things. No, the cord was a, was a sign of authority from a human being over a, a brute, a mule, a, a, a beast. And that is why he took it, because there were plenty of beasts there. But it wasn't that when Jesus was mad out of his, you know, some people say, well, the only time Jesus got upset was then. No, Jesus did not get upset. Not in the same way we understand being upset. When we are upset, it's because there's something selfish going on in our lives. Something is not working out the way we want it. That's not Jesus. Self-righteous uh, uh, indignations is not hatred. It is not Anger, righteous indignation is not anger. It doesn't come from the same source. He was perturbed by how the devil had misled all his people. These are his people. These are, I mean, let alone pagans. Pagans are way out there. These are the people that really know God. And look at how, 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 how messed up this is. Well, just working through that crowd was such evidence of divinity, such evidence of authority and power and poise, that is the miracle that, that Nicodemus took note of and said, you know, nobody, nobody is like that. 
you, you must be something because you wouldn't have been able to have done that. Nobody resisted you. Everybody left. Can you imagine that? Jesus answered. Look at Jesus. I mean, this is the way he, he starts that out, right? He says, you're somebody. That's basically what he's saying. You're, you're, you're somebody. And Jesus doesn't deal with that at all. And he says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and the Greek says born from above, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus at chess said, it is easy to see that you're somebody important. And Jesus answers by saying, the truth of the matter is you cannot see squat. You cannot see. You, uh, all you see is somebody who is different than everybody else you've known. All you can see is somebody who did something that nobody else had done in the temple before. But you're really missing the important thing. You still do not see that I'm the Son of God. You do not see that I'm the Messiah. You do not see that I have come I, you know, as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You are still blind. You cannot see unless you're born again. Now, it is significant that Jesus said that to a person who is the most equipped to be spiritual. If he has said that to Bartimaeus, if he has said to, to even to Judas, we may understand why they may need to be born again. But he said that to, to the person who had the best possible chance of being a follower of God. And he said to him, you cannot even see through the fog right now unless you're born again. What a radical statement Jesus made. A radical, radical statement. You know what that means? It doesn't matter how faithful, how faithful we have been as Seventh-day Adventists. It doesn't matter how much theological education we may have had. It doesn't matter whether we're experienced pastors, whether we have led people to Christ, whether anything, nothing matters. The point is every one of us, because he said that to Nicodemus, every one of, the, of, of us, are in the same situation. All of us, none of us can see until, until we're born again. And that is how Jesus put it. Now, obviously, he was surprised. Verse 4 says that, you know, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into mother's womb and be born, can he? Of course, he, you know, he was embarrassed, a little bit taken off off, you know, off step, and so he, he answered that way, even though he knew that was, that was nonsense. The whole concept of new birth was familiar to him. Uh, the Jews called new birth what, when pagans became Jews, they went through a new birth process. Um, however, the Jews never thought that it would apply to them, because they were the children of God. They were followers of God. So how could they need to be born again? And then Jesus reiterates this and adds something to that. Verse 5, he says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. So he made it specifically, born how? Born again, born how? Born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter. You see how he changed the verb? It's no longer see now. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Imagine this as a journey. If somebody were to say to me, if, uh, let's imagine in this room, uh, you know, somebody, an enemy of mine with a weapon trying to hurt me uh, and comes after me. What do I have? You know, it's like, whoa, I'm, in, I'm, I'm cornered. But somebody who is my friend says, walk through the door. I mean, walk through the wall. 
you'll escape that way. Right? What do I need to know first if I want to walk through that wall? Well, first of all, you know, physically speaking, that's not possible. So what he means by that is that there's some hidden door there. If I want to get into another kingdom, another realm, I have to find the door first, right? Before I can enter it. In verse 3, he says, you cannot see the door, let alone enter it in verse 5. Man, you need to see that door. You need to find, you need to find out where it is. You need to find what that is, and then you can, you can enter that door. Look in verse 6 and 8, eight 6 to 8. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We're going um, to work through some of these verses in a minute. Do not marvel, marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of this spirit. Have you heard of Samuel Morris? I remember a number of years ago I read that <clears throat> and it really struck me as a marvelous, marvelous story. How many of you have read about Samuel Morris' story? Anybody? Some of you have. It's a remarkable story. His name was Kabu. He was Prince Kabu, the Kru tribe in West Africa um, in the late... Um, 19th century, but a rival tribe had taken him captive and held him in, in ransom, basically uh, as an extortion to get uh, favors from the father's tribe. And they would beat him every single day. He was 15 years old. They would beat him every day. And then they would have people from the other tribe come and see him so beat, beat up. And, and then they would have to bring food. They would have to do things for that other tribe. Otherwise, they would keep beating him or they could kill him. In order, in order to keep the son of the tribal chief alive, they kept acquiescing to the demands of this cruel tribe. And so it went for months. But one time, after they beat him, shortly after, this is an amazing story, after they beat him, he was languishing there, you know, bleeding and everything. He was strapped. A, a huge light came on. Just the whole area just lit up. And a voice very distinctly spoke in his dialect saying, Run! Run now. And suddenly his shackles fell through, fell, fell off, and he, and he found himself free, and the voice said, run. And so he ran. He just ran, and he ran, and he ran, and he ran. Now, you have to understand, this is a 15, 16-year-old who is very weakened by all of these beatings every single day, and yet he had the strength to run and run and run. He ran for seven days straight. Twenty-four hours, seven days, run, because that's what the voice said. That's what the light, the voice in the light said to do. At the mission camp, yeah, he would hide during the day and then he would run at night. At the mission camp, he finally bumped into a Christian mission. And, uh, of course, the people recognized him from being a tribe that they hardly ever see. And uh, little by little, they started communicating. A couple of the ladies there started communicating with him and shared a little bit about Jesus. And he tried to tell his story. And they tried to tell him that, uh, that Jesus had interposed on his behalf. And then they started teaching the Bible. And they told him the story of Paul and Paul's deliverance. And how Paul was on his way to Damascus when a bright light, brighter than this, the noontime sun, uh, was on them. And a voice said, spoke to him 
And when they said that to him, he says, that's the same voice, the same person that spoke to me. That's the same light, the same person who spoke to me. Sure enough, it was in his, in his darkened understanding, in his very primitive understanding of God, he, he was able to recognize that. One day, it all makes sense. What the Bible said, what Jesus had done for him, he was baptized, he took a Christian name, and that's how we know him today, by Samuel, Samuel Morris. And uh, he was in love with Jesus, just in love with Jesus. He couldn't, he couldn't thank God. In, he sang all the time. Whatever songs he had learned at that mission camp, he just kept singing all the time. Sometimes it was irritating to other Christians because he was so happy with Jesus all the time. It's like, you know, you're just so happy, you know. He would help people all the time. He would just be, you know, tireless in trying to be good to others. He was just so thankful to Jesus. He kept praying, helping others. Finally, somebody, you know, one of you know, the missionaries had told him that where they had come from. And so he, he put together, he figured, you know, in America, people really know God. Because these people came from America, and they brought God to me. I know God, the loving God, the Savior, because these people, I must go to America. Because he's so in love with Jesus, he wants to go wherever he could learn more about Jesus. And so he was convicted that he needed to go to America. He was about 18 by this time, maybe 17. He found a ship going to New York City. He walked all the way to the... This is in today's Angola or so. He walked all the way to the shore. I mean, several days, got to the shore. And, and you know, people said, you know, you, you can't just go out there and hope that you're going to find a ship that goes to America. Oh, yes. My father told me. And so he, he, you know, he just sets out to do this. He's so absolutely convinced and lives by faith every moment that he gets there. Sure enough, he gets there. There's a ship and is ready to go to New York in a few minutes. He says, that's the ship I'm supposed to go. And so he gets there. He, and so the, the, the captain lets him in to work. You know, he doesn't understand even why he lets him in. But he says, okay, that's fine. And uh, so he lets him do that for menial jobs and janitorial type things. Well, he's, he's a black guy from a primitive tribe in the late 19th century in an American ship. I'll let you do the math. How do you think he was treated by the other crew members and other passengers? Like worse than an animal in many ways. In addition to that, the guy's always happy. And he's always singing. And, he, and, he, and he's not normal. He's just, you know, he's just so different. And so that irritates them. They harass him. They, they make his life difficult. Uh, several times they even try to kill him. At one point, there was a fight between two crew members that they were at each other. He offers his life so that one wouldn't be killed. And they do not understand that love. They do not understand why somebody who is constantly abused and, 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 and harassed and put down would love their enemies. You know what happened? It took about six months. And in those six months, the life of this young man the life of this young man, full of Jesus, changed the life of everyone in that ship. Every one of those people became a Christian, a genuine, God-loving Christian by the time they docked in New York City because of his life. The greatest miracle was not his amazing deliverance. That's a miracle. That's an amazing miracle. The greatest miracle was not his passage to America or what happened to those crew members. The major thing about Samuel Moore's story, really, 
is how he actually became a Christian. The fact that God would find him out there where nobody even knew anyone existed. And God would call him and God would save him and God would lead his steps the way that he did. And how God loved this young man and turned his life completely the opposite of what he was used to. Every, everything in his life. I mean, he had no advantages whatsoever. That is the real miracle. The change of heart and what God does to, to make that happen. In John 3, we really find a birth process that uh, I'd like us for us to, to uh, review carefully. I have seven points about this. And let's talk a little bit about it. Number one, verses, uh, based on verses 2, 3, and 5, no one is really alive. No one is really alive until he or she is born from above. Jesus made that clear to Nicodemus when he says, you must, that's the first thing out of his mouth, you must be born again. You got everything anyone would want. You have all this privilege. The truth is, you're dead, you're worse than dead. Because you think you're not. They cannot even see, let alone enter into the joys of God. That lack of peace, that which prompted him to say, you know, I better, I better pick your brain about this because it is obviously you, 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 you run your life in a different way than everybody else I know. Number two, the sinful nature is totally different from the spiritual nature. The sinful nature and the spiritual nature are complete opposites. Verse 6 says that. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. All right? And Jesus wasn't speaking simply about physical birth. He was talking about spiritual in the spiritual realm. That which, is, what, that which is sinful is sinful and will remain to be so. That which is spiritual is a different thing. You see, the problem is that Satan has cleverly introduced a third option. And this is where it gets interesting, all right? Good and evil, and then Satan says, oh yeah, but there's a third option. And that third option is seen in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. We're going to read that. And I want you to look at this very carefully. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So, Paul makes the same point we've been making, right? You cannot fix this. A natural man, it is impossible for the natural man or the sinful man to understand the things of God, the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. Because they're not appraised by the same, with the same uh, tools. It, it, it's, it's not possible. And then he goes on, verse 15. But he who is spiritual, that's the second type. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. In other words, it doesn't affect him by how other people appraise him. And then chapter 3, verse 1, the next one says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. But as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. Who is he talking to? The Corinthian church, right? Did the Corinthian church have problems? Big time problems. You know, incest was one of them. Uh, taking people, taking brothers and sisters to court was another one. You know, I mean, major, major problems. In fact, I, I realized uh, a couple of years ago that the New Testament makes mention of elders in, just about, in many churches that are mentioned in the New Testament. But it does not mention any elders for a Corinthian church. Have you ever noticed that? Evidently, there was no elders in the Corinthian church. Why? Not because there were, not, you know, there were no males, for instance, in, in that male-dominated society. It's because there were probably not a single 
spiritually mature individual that could be asked to be an elder in that church. That is why uh, Paul ministered to that church from as a proxy minister by letters in, in sending messengers in, in just helping that out until somebody would grow up, spiritually speaking. Huh? This church was a mess. It was a, a veritable mess. It wasn't, it wasn't much better than a lot of you know, pagan type of things. And so he says to them, I can't speak to you as spiritual people, but as infants in Christ. So what's going on? Here's the three, this is the third option the devil has produced. Now follow me carefully here. There are really two natures. One is the sinful nature, the other one is the spiritual nature. The sinful nature is the one that you cannot do anything about, the natural man. Unable to make progress, you cannot fix it. It has to be thrown away. The spiritual nature is the, is the one that God has to offer through the new birth process. It's a born from above Christian, regenerated spiritual nature is added to that individual. Okay? The carnal nature or the fleshly nature is really, I know those are the words of the apostles, but the, really the invention is, I believe, Satan's. What is that? The fleshly man or the carnal man is somebody who has said yes to Jesus to begin with but does not continue to grow in Jesus. In other words, it has an intellectual uh, relationship with God, but it's not of the heart. It is not a surrendered heart. It is one that has said, you know, that makes sense, or, or I can see that, or, or yes, thank you, God, and, and it has never continued to, it was born, but it never grew up. Now, I want you to visualize how gross that concept is in the physical realm. Everybody has seen babies, right? Everybody has seen babies. Some, some probably have seen babies that were just born, right? Really tiny little things, full of verb. Ver. Thank you. And uh, anyway, they need to be cleaned up in there, crying and all that, you know, little things like that, right? About this big. Imagine... Imagine 40 years later coming to seeing that same baby, 40 years later, and that baby hasn't grown. How would, they, how would a 40-year-old baby look like? Pretty gross. Well, a 40-year-old baby. I'm not talking about a 40-year-old person. 40-year-old baby. It would be pretty gross, right? You know that something really, really awfully wrong has gone on there. That's the carnal man. That's the carnal man. And the devil says, look, you're already a Christian. In many evangelical circles, that's, that's the focus. The focus is, hold on to what Jesus has done at the cross. But uh, the whole idea of growing in Jesus is dismissed or is, is not important. The whole idea is accepting Jesus' death for you on the cross. But the whole idea about accepting Jesus' life in you today is not a part of the equation. But the issue is that if a baby is born and is healthy, that baby will develop. That will be, baby will get bigger. You know, in fact, the... Uh, you know, we've had three children, and I help deliver them. Help is too, it's vaunted a word for a male to use when you say you help deliver a baby. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> My wife delivered the baby with the grace of God. Anyway, uh, but that baby, you already see growth. In, a, in about four days, you already see that baby bigger. It's bigger. In fact, four hours after birth, that baby could not be put back in, into the uterus. Hmm? That's normal. That's what is supposed to happen. 
And you know how much babies grow when they're, you know, after six months? If we were to grow at the same rate we grow the first six months, we would all be as big as this building and weigh 3,000 pounds and be slim and trim. You like that, huh? <laughs> the devil says, you said yes to God. That's, leave it at that. Leave it at that. That's the carnal man. The carnal man is the one that is not growing. And the carnal man really is the natural man, is a sinful man, really. But except that it's now by choice. Because it refuses to keep growing in Christ. Number three, the new birth is the only solution to the sinful nature, which in turn must die. That's important to understand. Look in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, this is, this is not an option, Nicodemus. This is not an option. You must He's not recommending this. He's saying, you must be born. If you want to be alive, you must be born again. And that means that if you have two natures now, we're going to talk about the two natures later. If you're going to have two natures, you cannot live with two natures forever. Right? That's pretty confusing. And so, eventually, one must die and the other one must be supreme, right? And it depends what you feed, what nature you keep feeding, the one that will make a difference, will, will keep growing or not. So the other one will die. The new birth is the only solution to the sinful nature. The idea of the new birth is seen all over the New Testament, by the way. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. Huh? Born of what? That's, that's, that's a clue. That's a huge clue right there. You want to be born again? You really want to be growing? There it is. It is the seed of the word. The seed of the word. That's what grows you. Nothing else really grows you except for the word of God. The word of God is what grows a person. All right? That's the, that's the, the, the food. All right? Romans 6, 7 to 10, for instance. He who has died is um, something behind that, something behind the picture that I forgot to move over. He who, he, he who has died is free from sin, right? Is that what it says? Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. So, it's one or the other, eventually. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. In Greek, a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. New things have come. They, so the Bible talks about two things that are dichotomous, that are different, that are opposite. And it needs to be that way. Matthew 18, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it is all over the New Testament. Number four, to be born from above is the work of the Spirit, but to die to self is your decision. And I want to I emphasize that. There's, there's some subtlety about that. In verse 8, it explains how the work of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know... How it works, you know where it's, you don't know where it's coming from exactly, but you hear the sound of it. You know the results because it's moving the tree tops or the leaves of the trees. So you know the wind is there. So it is the work of the Spirit, but the decision is yours. Verse 7 said that you must be born again. So the implication is you have something to do about this. You must be born again. So it is the work of the Spirit, but what you can do is stop the work of the Spirit if you choose to. It is the work of the Spirit to initiate it, to mobilize it, but you could stop it. It is not you to initialize it. It is not your work to be born again. It is not what you don't say one day, one, you know, wake up in the morning and say, God, all right, I want to be born again today. That's not how it works. 
God has already decided he wants you to be born again. The question is whether you are going to allow him to or not. Whether you're going to stop that process or not. Just like a baby. A baby does not decide. A baby in the womb does not decide. Today, I think I want to be born. Mom. No. It, it, there are other forces working on behalf of that baby. Even the mom doesn't decide that. Yeah, I know with modern medicine today, you induce the baby to be born. Say, you know, because Thursday is better than Friday and so forth and so on. But the truth of the matter is that in normal, in normal processes, not even the mother decides when that baby is born. Right? There are other forces from above that make... So the new birth, you can trust this, is God at work. God is already at work on this. The difference is whether or not... And I'm going to give you a picture, a mental picture here to, to, so that will stick with you. Whether or not... As you go down the birth canal, you say, ah, I don't want to be, I don't want to come out. <laughs> you know? If you don't do that, God is going to have his way with you. Praise God for that. But we can do that. You know, unlike that baby, the baby doesn't put his elbows out and say, you know, oh, no, no, that's too small a place for me to come through. You know? Number five, they, and, and, and I'll tell you a little bit more about this. You'll see how real this analogy is. God, Jesus chose a very real analogy about this. The new birth is the inward work or baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it is the outward demonstration. It is outwardly demonstrated by water baptism. What are we saying here? Jesus said in verse 3 and 5, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. Sometimes people make a difference between water baptism and, and, and spirit baptism. You need to be careful about that. Water baptism is simply the demonstration of something that the Spirit has done in your life. In Pentecostal um, um, communions and in charismatic communions, the whole theology is what is called a second blessing theology and that means that after you have become a christian sometime after you become a christian you finally receive the spirit and, and you go into a, a new level of christian experience and this is what you need to seek for and that's why in in some of the classical pentecostal communions it is demonstrated by speaking in tongues as once you speak in tongues that means you have really 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 now been born. Oh, yeah, you were born again, but you were really, now you're baptized by the Spirit. That is a false dichotomy. Being born of water and the Spirit is the same thing in Jesus' mind. What does that mean? The water is simply the outward expression of something that has taken place inside through the work of the Spirit in your life. But it is demonstrated. It is, it is, um, it becomes clear. Water is a symbol for cleansing, whereas the Holy Spirit is the source of the power for that whole new birth process. Now, take a look at this. That's a real newborn right there. Boom. There is no mistake in new life. When a woman gives birth, all of a sudden we have a baby where before it wasn't there. Hmm? So, New birth means you're going to have something very tangible. It's very real. Let's, let's really talk about this. I'm going to keep that picture on for you to, to keep in mind. This is where we came from. And uh, all of us looked like that at one point or another. A few things about the metaphor. New birth is caused, I mean, birth is caused by eternal, external forces, not by personal work or human decision. Just like I mentioned regarding the mother or the son. In the case of uh, physical birth, it's, it's biological forces. It is not a decision. I, I can guarantee you this. In, in, those of you, those women that are here who are mothers can vouch for this. Most mothers would have much more have would have chosen to have had that baby a month before or two months before they actually had the baby. 
How about times you've heard, you know, women, oh, I wish I could have, you know, just carrying a big, you know, it's like, because it gets, it gets, this is, this is tough stuff. But it's not her decision. Neither is the baby's. And your being born of the Spirit is not your decision either. It is God's decision. God has already decided that unless you stop Him, you're going to be born again. Isn't that a marvelous piece of news? God works towards your being born of the Spirit. He wants to work on that. He, that is His whole intent. It is also the most painful experience for a human being to go through. Blessed are we that we can't remember any of that. But can you imagine when your head is a cone? That's some excruciating pain right there, right? There is a reason why the babies cry when it's like, you know, it's not that they, it's not like they're waiting for the doctor to pat him in the back. It's like this is really ah! <laughs> I want you to understand the physics of this. The birth canal is about 13 inches wide and it's widest. No, it's 10 inches. It's 10 inches. Not 10 inches, rather, no, centimeters. Sorry, some, some of you ladies were saying, really? <laughs> yeah, no, let me correct that. 10 centimeters. That's not very large. And you're going to get a baby through that? You're going to get a baby through that. All of us went through it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I know somebody says, oh, that explains. No. Uh, <laughs> this is a very painful experience. Not just for the mother. For the child as well. And you can count on it. If you're really going to be born again, if you're really going to be in love with God, if your nature is going to change, it's going to cause pain. It is going to be joyful at one, at, on one side of it. In the other one, it's going to cause pain. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult trials in the process. And there will be days in which you, you would wish you were on your own. And you will even say to God, leave me alone. But if you really bind yourself to the will of God, He will see you through. He will nurture you. He will give you plenty of joy just at the time that you need it. And grow you, and grow you, and grow you. The most painful part is when you're younger. But after you're more established, it's less and less painful. You've all heard, everybody has heard of uh, growing pains. You know, we usually refer to that to, you know, teenagers that grow a foot in one summer. Probably not a foot, but close. Uh, growing pains, you know, they're kind of discalibrated and they can't, you know, move very well because they're growing so fast. Well, when you get to be my age, you don't grow anymore except for a few places where you shouldn't. You're established. The issues are different. Hmm? Doctors used to call this procedure a conversion. And that is when a baby is breached, you know, instead of head down first, his feet down first, that can be extremely bad. I mean, mothers have died at birth uh, because of that. And babies have too, you know, when they get their legs all, you know, twisted up or their you know, umbilical cords and stuff. So what they used to do is, you ready for this? You're all sitting? Uh, the, the, the doctor would put his hand up the birth canal and convert. That's what they called it. They called it conversion. A conversion procedure was to change the baby so that the head would go down first. And so that both could survive. It's interesting that they call that conversion. 
That's exactly what needs to happen because in a new birth process, the thing that really matters is the head. That's what happens. That's where it all happens. And if the head is in good shape, if the head, if, you know, everything else will follow. If the head, head leads, everything else will follow. Interesting characteristics of new, newborns. All newborns typically uh, have the same physical, you know, shape when they're born. They have their arms folded, not flailing like this. Arms folded, they're coming through the birth canal. Arms folded, knees bent, not straight. You don't find babies being born with straight legs out, you know, like kicking a soccer ball. It's just, you know, knees bent and their head is bowed. Now I want you to visualize that. Arms folded, knees bent, head bowed. What a beautiful picture of humility. And that is what it will take for you to be born. That's what it will take for us to be born again. A, a state of humility, a state of surrender. In fact, no babies are born with their head up like this. They're not. It's always like the head down. Because what would happen? A typical size baby, let's say seven or eight pound baby, the length between their chin and the crown of their head is about 13 uh, centimeters. But when their head are bowed, it's 10 centimeters. You know, the, the, same, the same area. And that is what it needs to make it through the birth canal. And so there are no haughty births. You, the babies don't come out like this. It would rip up the mother, and they would die in the process. How wise was Jesus when he told us, you must be born again. Think about that. This is all that it entails. That humility, that surrender, the work of God. This is what God is doing in your life. You must be born again. Number six, even though the work of the Spirit is a mystery, the result of His work is the new, in the newborn is not a mystery. Just like the wind shows that it is active, the result is not a mystery. What is the result of the birth of the Spirit? Give me a text. I don't have it here. That's why I'm asking you. What is the result of somebody who is born of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, exactly. The result of being born of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 3. What is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, right? Faithfulness. All of those qualities, temperance or self-control in modern versions. That is the result of your being born. So if that is not a part of your life, what does that mean? That some of you are still in that birth canal. That the birth is not complete. That, they, that, that there's no growing yet. It's not, it's not fully happening. You should see some of that. You should see very tangible results. In fact, the Bible makes it so clear that it's almost scary. Because we're so used to sin that we find this to be almost radical. Here it is. How do we know we have been born again? Five pieces of evidence from 1 John. Number one, the born-again sinner practices righteousness. That's what it says in 1 John 2.29. Practices righteousness. If you know that he is righteous, God is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, it doesn't mean that he is righteous, inherently so. It says that he practices righteousness. In other words, the desire is to do good, is to do what God wants, is to do what God, is to please God. He is the righteous one. So that is the practice of that. That is evidence that I am not doing my will. I, I don't want to do my will. I want to do his will. Secondly, does not practice sin. 
conversely. All right? 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. Now, that doesn't say no one who is born of God is sinless. It says no one who is born of God practices sin. In other words, that person is not in the business of doing time and again the same sinful things. If you or I are constantly nilly-willy doing the same things, the same sins, uh, time and again, we're not born again. We're still allowing the fleshly nature, the carnal nature, to have preeminence. We may say we are Christians, but we're not really born again. We're born again when we, when, when we surrender. Oh, and that doesn't mean that you don't fail or that you make mistakes. But it's not a habitual thing that you keep going at it time and time and time again, nilly-willy. It doesn't happen. Why? Because if you're born again, you don't want that. You want to, you want to do what God wants. You, you want to agree with God and not disagree with Him. And another evidence, the born-again sinner loves others. That probably is one of the most tangible evidences because it is hard, it, it is not easy to um, fake. The other two are easier to fake. Even self-deceptively fake it. Uh, but this one, you can't really fake. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So, I find myself loving people who normally I don't care for. I find myself uh, being gracious to people who I wouldn't give them the time of day before. They would not normally be my friends, and yet I want to engage with them. I want to benefit them. I want to be a blessing to them. That is the love of God in you. Fourth, believes Jesus is the Christ, is the deliverer. Yes, and that's, that's, that's much easier to understand. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that, the Christ is, that, that, that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And 5, overcomes the world living by faith. Overcomes the world living by faith. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We'll talk about that tomorrow morning. About what that is like. That nature of faith. That, uh, that the, the spiritual nature, the new birth has provided. The last thing I want to mention. The birth process for some, number seven. Nothing will bring them to death to self and a new birth until they see the love of God at the cross. That's what happened with uh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus understood some of these things intellectually, but he was not willing yet to surrender to, to be born. He was not being, he's not willing for God to push him out of that safety, safety cocoon, which is called, you know, the church. Have, have you realized that that's a good analogy too? When a, when a mother is pregnant... And, and she bumps her stomach against the furniture and says, ouch! The baby inside says, ouch for what? In other words, the baby is very protected. And people that are not born again feel many times safe. But in reality, they're not alive yet. They're not living yet. If they have no struggle, it's because they're not living yet. Um, so in the case of Nicodemus, verses 14 to 17, let's read that very quickly. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son to the world, to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. What is Jesus telling Nicodemus? He is making a reference to that bronze serpent that Moses built in order to, for people to look up and live, to look up to that serpent by faith and say, God said that if I look it up, I will be healed of these, uh, uh, of being bitten by the fiery serpents. Uh, so here's the, the new birth symbolism is what needs to happen to Nicodemus, right? To be able to see the kingdom of God. But the serpent symbolism 
is what needs to happen to Jesus for Nicodemus to be able to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus would become sin itself, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21, right? He became sin for us. He became the personification of the serpent. And as we look to him who has taken all our sin unto him, we too can be healed. That's why uh, um, Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes we are healed. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. John 1, 12 and 13, as many as has rec as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And that is your privilege and mine. Now I know this is a lecture. This has been a, a kind of an intellectual process. But I, I, I'd like to encourage you to read through those texts again. And some of the notes again. And then on your knees say to God, God, I, I may not be as born again as maybe I thought I was. Or I may not be growing. I was, I'm born, but, but I may be a fleshly person who is not really growing like a normal baby should be growing to become an adult. Oh, Lord Jesus, please working, keep working in me. I surrender to you. I want you to, I, I don't want to resist you in any way. I don't want to do my will. I want you to do your will totally unhindered in my life. I can tell you that if you pray that prayer on a consistent basis, you will see that there are areas in your life that will start changing, which before you may have not seen any changes for years. Things will start changing in your life. That is the miracle of the new nature. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us this time to talk about John 3 and what Jesus told Nicodemus. Help us process this. Help us, help us cooperate with you in this birth process. Uh, Lord, we understand that the new birth is not something that happens instantly. But it takes, it takes a while. And, and, and if we cooperate with you, if we let you do what you mean to do in our lives, it'll be quicker, faster. And we'll grow faster. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to say to you, we surrender. We surrender to you. Have your way with us. Please make us grow according to your will. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.